You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We'll be in verses 18 through 27 this morning. As you turn there, uh, went and did some research and found that this is today our 44th sermon in the Gospel of Mark. We began, I believe, on May the 31st of last year. And we have preached with some interruptions along the way, but largely we have preached from this gospel Sunday in and Sunday out. And as I have projected into the future, I think we will probably tap out at around 60 sermons from this gospel sometime in November, give or take a sermon or two. We, we take an approach with our Sunday morning preaching here called expository preaching. We have taken a stance as leaders in this church, that we believe it best on Sunday mornings to methodically work through large passages of Scripture, sometimes books, sometimes large sections, so that we are in a position to receive the Bible, the Word of God, as God intended it to. There's a lot lost when you bounce around from place to place. You lose a lot of context, and we have been able to soak into the Gospel of Mark these last 40-some-odd weeks. And we've been able to receive it like many of the people in the Roman church that we think Mark wrote this gospel to. An expository approach to Scripture requires the preacher to proclaim God's Word on God's schedule. (laughs) It makes it hard for a guy like me to get up here and rant and rave on my pet peeve topics. God is the one that dictates where we will be one Sunday to the next when we say we're going to march through the book of Mark. And so it is a governor, we believe it is a good governor and regulator on men like me so that we don't take this pulpit and make it our own. It's just a a fence that we think is wise. We also understand that such preaching requires guys like me to preach on tough topics from some occasion to another. There are topics that I will be honest None of us would delight in coming on a Sunday morning and preaching on, but when you follow a book of the Bible that God has inspired, you come to the tough topics and you faithfully preach the tough topics. And so we think it is healthy for all of us to let God lead us Sunday in and Sunday out through his books as he inspired them to be written. On our journey through the Gospel of Mark, I also did some research and and, and looked across a broad array of topics that the Lord has taken us through because we have followed him in his book of Mark. Uh, sometimes people accuse expository preaching of getting slanted and only being in one area of the Bible. Well, that's true. We are in one area of the Bible, but all areas of the Bible deal with all areas of life and all areas of Christianity. Just listen to some of the topics that we've been able to cover in these weeks. We've talked about evangelism and God has called us to be fishers of men. We've We've looked into the concept of believer's baptism. We've understood that as Christians we are to suffer. We have been called to be people who are humble. We have been warned against exclusivity and we are to be inclusive of all peoples with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been challenged on the concept of divorce and remarriage. We've been warned about legalism. We've been called to have simple faith, the faith of a child. We've been shown that our hearts are the temple of God. It's not a building. It's our hearts that are temple of God. We've been shown that God is sovereign. We've even been told as we were last Sunday how to relate to the government. We've covered a broad array of topics in this gospel so far and we've got many still to cover. This morning I stand before you to proclaim from the word of God and the gospel of Mark what I think is perhaps the greatest 
topic of truth. It's the topic of the resurrection. As I read during the offertory time and as I prayed, we are not here this morning if it is not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. And so Christ here is approached on this topic of the resurrection, and he has some very important words for the Sadducees in this text, but also for people like you and me in 2016. So I invite you now to look with me into chapter 12 of Mark, and we'll pick up reading in verse 18. Here's what Mark was inspired to write by God. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Sounds like mercy to me. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the father of I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So, Father, we come before you now asking that you would grant us understanding, more understanding about the resurrection, and that we would embrace your truth fully and worshipfully. Help me, Father, to proclaim this rightly to all of us, and help all of us, Father, to respond to this with hearts of worship. And we pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. So we have uh, another tribunal that has come to Jesus this morning. Last week we saw that the Pharisees partnered up with the Herodians and they came at him with a question about rendering taxes to the Roman government. Well, this morning we get a second wave of challenge for Jesus Christ. It's a challenge that's brought by the the Sadducees. Uh, we need to know something about these Sadducees before we move on because where they come from and what they believe is paramount to understanding what's happening in this passage. The, the Pharisees are the men who dominated the priesthood of Israel at this time. They were super educated. They were highly wealthy. Uh, they were quite, as Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, gives us, they were quite arrogant, full of themselves, snarky and rude and sometimes even bullies with the Word of God. They believed only in the five books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Their Bible stopped right there. They had no place in their theology for the prophets. They had no place for the books of wisdom or the writings, the historical books like Kings and Chronicles. They did not pay any regard to those. They were men who centered themselves only 
on five books of the Bible. In those books, they found no reference to angels. They found no reference to the resurrection, and so they rejected both of those truths. In fact, these men rejected anything that was supernatural, anything that could be considered miraculous. They had no place for that in their theology. And tragically, these men, as I said a moment ago, ruled the priesthood of the nation of Israel. You know, they are much like the uh, wicked tenants in the vineyard that we looked at two weeks ago. They rejected the prophets. They only embraced what Moses wrote. And here they are rejecting the son of the owner of the vineyard in their line of questioning. They also, to their tragedy, denied largely the sovereignty of God. And they banked on the free will of man. And that is the root of their theology. Mark tells us that as they came to Jesus, they said that there was no resurrection in verse 18. These guys believed that at death, the soul died with the body. And it was all over. This is the priesthood of Israel. They believed that when you died, it's done, it's finished. We call these kinds of guys today annihilationists. And they were, 2,000 years ago, staunch, hardcore annihilationists. When you die, you turn into dust, and that's all she wrote. There is no eternal life involved in humankind. The majority of the Jews, contrary to this belief, these were a, this was a small group of men. The majority of the Jews, including the Pharisees, they believed in a life after death. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in it in a lot of wrong ways. They believed that in the afterlife, we just kept on going with life as we had it here on earth. And we stayed in our families and we had our dogs and everything else. They took that to the wrong extreme as well. And so there's much correction that is needed on this topic of resurrection. And so here we have a tribunal of what I call heretics. That's point number one. A tribunal of heretics assembles to ask Jesus about the resurrection that they don't believe in. Number two, let's look at the trap that they set for Jesus. Picking up at the last part of verse 18. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And they proceed to work through seven brothers that are to come to this woman who is a widow six times, and they are to become her husband and give her offspring. They set their trap first by calling Jesus teacher. That's what the Herodians and the Pharisees did last week. They do not believe that he is the great teacher, but they are buttering up to him. They are positioning themselves to set a trap and they are faking respect and reverence for him. Their question is a trap based on the resurrection that they absolutely do not believe in. Their trap is centered on Leverite marriage. And I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25 because I want to show you the foundation behind their question for Jesus. Matthew, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, picking up in verse 5. As you get there, you'll find that you might have a heading in your Bible called Laws Concerning Leverite Marriage. It's not inspired scripture. That was added by translators. They're helpful tools. Uh, Leverite marriage. Leverite is a Latin word for brother-in-law. 
And so we could say that this is laws concerning brother-in-law marriage. And let's see what Moses was inspired to command to the people of God by God in verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then the brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who, has, who had his sandal pulled off. Wow. So if you're walking through an Israelite village some 4,000 years ago and you came upon a house that had a sign that said, here is the house of him who had his sandal pulled off, you would know much about what went on in that household. Furthermore, if you saw a man walking around town with one bare foot, <laughs> you could assume that he lived in that house. It's a little bit different, isn't it? We don't have such laws today. I thank God for the fulfillment of all the law in Jesus Christ. <laughs> there is a call by God, and he sees the importance here of his people Israel back in the Old Testament for the perpetuation of a man's name. And he made a provision within his law that a man who dies childless would have his name perpetuated in the books of the people of Israel so that his name would not be blotted out. And he established a law for brother-in-laws to come in and keep the family name going and to prevent this woman from marrying outside of the tribe of Israel. There are some scriptural examples of this law being violated. I, I would refer you this afternoon, if you want to do a little self-study, Genesis 38, 6 through 11. We've got a man named Onan who had a sister-in-law named Tamar, and he failed to fulfill his Leverite responsibilities with her, and it did not work out well. You could also read the book of Ruth this afternoon, and this concept is prevalent throughout the, the book of Ruth. Now, I want you to understand... Incidentally, I'm going to say this. These brothers of this husband, let's, let's be careful here. These are unmarried brothers that are to go into this widowed sister-in-law. Okay, let's, let's not see that God's making a provision for polygamy there. These are unwed brothers that are to go in. If they do not have a wife, they are to fulfill their brother's role with that widow. But I want you to see that the Fer uh, Sadducees, if we come back over to Mark chapter 12, the Sadducees here line out this scenario with seven brothers, and it's all really just a bunch of noise. It's all really 
a distraction. It's all really to set the table for the grand trap that they are going to put before Jesus Christ. It's really much to do about nothing. The, the trap is designed to trip Jesus on the issue of a superstition that these Sadducees believe the Israelites believe in, this superstition of the resurrection. And we're going to trap Jesus because he's not good for our business. And while we're at it, we're going to debunk the myth of resurrection. Here's the trap as I see it. As they ask Jesus, which brother will be her husband in heaven? Jesus really has three ways to go on this. Number one, he's going to have to go through some machinations to come up with the one of the seven brothers that should be her husband in heaven. And there's nothing explaining that formula in the Old Testament. Would it maybe be the first brother since the first in is the guy? Maybe not. Would it be the last since that was her last that she knew as husband? Or maybe it's the one that he was, she was married to for the longest. How in the world could Jesus just willy-nilly make up a law explaining whose brother, which brother would be her husband in eternity? It's kind of a trap that there in and of itself. He, he could also take the stance that all of them are her husband in heaven. And therefore, he's endorsing polygamy in the eternal state, in the resurrected state of heaven. That would not be faithful to the Old Testament. Or the third is perhaps what the Sadducees really wanted. He would have to refute the resurrection altogether and say there is no such resurrection, so your question is not worth answering. None of these are good outcomes, and so it seems that our Jesus is boxed in and trapped. And it seems like these Sadducees think that they've got him. They've come to him with their toughest question. Just like the Pharisees and the Herodians did last week, their toughest question. And now I think they probably sat back and winked at one another and said, we've got him. Well, let's watch the third point of this morning's message. Let's watch Jesus dismantle their trap using the word of God. Jesus confronts these men in their ignorance and their stubbornness in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you were wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Okay, I'm thinking they're backpedaling at this point. He goes on in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. So Jesus goes at them with the Scriptures and accuses them of not knowing the Scriptures that they are all puffed up about knowing. He accuses them of not knowing the power of God, and they were big-time proponents of the power of God. This is the, the priestly line in the leadership of, Steve, of Stephenville, of uh, Israel. Where in the world did that come from? And then he goes right at them with this lack of belief in angels in heaven. So Jesus gets after it. You look in, I think it's Acts 23, 8. Uh, Luke tells us that they don't believe in angels or the resurrection. So he boldly confronts them right where they think they are strong. Right in the middle of their scriptures, he says, you don't understand them. He, he says, you do not understand the power of God. This brought to mind to me the words of Paul in Romans chapter 1. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto eternal life. 
The gospel includes a resurrection. There's no good news if there's a dead Jesus. He's got to be raised from the dead. And that resurrection is the power of God. And here Jesus tells these Sadducees, you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. Where you think you are most strong, I say to you, you are most weak. And it's because of unbelief. Ultimately, he responds with a shocking answer. His his ultimate answer is, she's married to none of them. And now that stumps them totally because he's not playing ball. Wait a minute. That's not within the confines of the, the fencing that we set up for you. That's outside of the rails that we put around you. What do you mean, none of them? Well, Jesus goes on to explain that life in the fallen flesh does not dictate life in the resurrection. What we know as normal in this life is not automatically going to dictate what will be normal in the afterlife. And he's speaking to Pharisees and common Jews as well as the Sadducees at this moment. No, we need to understand that life as we know it in this age is all a shadow of the things to come in the resurrection. What we're living out in many ways in life today is a shadow, a a foretelling of a greater reality that's going to exist in the resurrection. Let me give you an example, and we'll get to marriage too. But I would say to you this morning, Sunday mornings is a shadow. What we do here at 1015 is a shadow of what we will do for all eternity in the resurrection. It's a shadow, but it's not the ultimate substance. We gather in the name of Jesus Christ. That is common. We will be gathered in heaven, in in the new heavens and the new earth, centered around Jesus Christ. We center ourselves on the word of God, Jesus Christ, by preaching expository sermons on God's word about Jesus Christ. We proclaim the gospel every Sunday that we gather together and remind one another of his substitutionary death and burial and resurrection. But in heaven, you will not have a guy like me preaching the word of God to you. You will have the Lamb of God who you will stand before and bow before and worship to for all of eternity. When we sing on Sunday mornings, we need to understand that what we sing and how we sing is a foreshadowing of what we will do in all of eternity. I've got a passage in Revelation. We will be singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is. We will sing to Jesus, the glory of Jesus, about Jesus for the benefit of Jesus. There are many songs that we sing in this life now that will not be sung in heaven. I pray that be true. We need to be careful on Sunday mornings that we understand this is a foreshadowing of what we will do for all of eternity. And so we need to be careful in what we preach and we need to be careful in what we sing. We need to be reverent and worshipful and we need to be well practiced for when eternity comes and we're before Christ the Lamb singing directly to him face to face. Well, the same works in marriage. Marriage Like Sunday morning is a foreshadowing of eternity, marriage is as well. Our marriages are to proclaim the gospel. They are to demonstrate the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And so we need to understand that 
what we experience in this life in marriage pales in comparison to what we will experience in eternity when we are married, figuratively speaking, to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Jesus says that we're going to be like angels. What does that mean? Does that mean we're going to have wings and harps? And we're going to come down to, uh, I forgot his name, uh, at Christmas. And every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. What's his name? Clarence. I, I would not be able to continue preaching without that. Clarence the angel. Great movie. Love it. Let's don't quit watching it. But man, that is absolutely not reality whatsoever. Let's don't worship by it for sure. I want you to note that Jesus says we're not going to become angels. He says we're going to be like angels. Now, how are we going to be like them? We're not going to be the angels. We're going to be like them. Remember, these Sadducees, in hearing this, don't believe in angels at all. Well, I think that we're going to be like angels in that we will not be alone. Do you, do you understand why God established marriage, by the way, in Genesis? He said it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he put the man into a deep sleep and took a rib and fashioned a woman. And the two became one flesh. We're, we're going to be like the angels in that we are not lonely and independent and autonomous. We are going to be surrounded by a cloud of witnesses worshiping the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We're also going to be like the angels in that we do not need in the eternal life after this life to procreate. <laughs> Reproduction is not necessary. When God brought man and woman together, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, the earth was filled with future worshipers in eternity, and there will be no procreation. And that is one of the, the core purposes for marriage is that a man and a woman could come together and there would be offspring. There is not a need for that in the resurrection because there will be myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands worshiping at the throne of God. So it is in that sense that we will be like the angels. We will be like the angels in that we will never die again. We will live and live and live and worship and worship and worship before the Lamb of God forever. So we're going to be like them. And we're not going to have a need for this earthly gift called marriage. We're going to have a better gift called marriage to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The Luke passage says it like this. Jesus said, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. That's how Luke recorded Jesus' response to these Sadducees. So like angels, we will be in a glorified state, a sinless state, and we will live forever and ever and ever. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning real quick here, because when you hit a passage like this, I, I sometimes, and I've experienced it, I've spent a lot of time on this passage over the years, and so I don't wince anymore, but when you first read a passage that there will be no marriage in heaven, that kind of that kind of hurts. Let's be very honest. We love our spouses. We like the concept of marriage a lot. 
And then we start thinking, I, I'm not going to know Jennifer in heaven. I'm not going to, is it just not going to be a big deal? Am I just going to be numb to the, the past and blind to whatever happened in the past? To all of that, I say absolutely no. No. There is a marriage in heaven. It's a marriage that is far better than the marriages we can have on earth. These marriages point to that marriage, and we will love Jesus Christ perfectly, like we can't love one another in marriage on this earth perfectly. And we will be so enamored with Jesus Christ and our marriage to Him, our figurative marriage to Him, that we will not hurt for our marriages in this life. But I do think that there is a a place for us to have memories and relationships that go with us into eternity. And I don't just think that because I want it to be true. I think we will have relationships with people dear to us, and I use the example of David to prove that there will be relationships in heaven that are carried over from relationships in earth. If you remember, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and there was a child that came as a result of that. And God forgave David but said, there is a consequence. That child will not live. I will remove him from you. And David mourned and mourned and wept and wept and fasted until one day when the little boy died, as God promised. And David's men came to him. They were scared to tell him the truth of this death. But David understood that he had died because his guys are huddling around, whispering to one another, trying to figure out how to break the news. And he gets up, he dusts himself off, he washes his face, and he marches through the rest of his life. And his men are astonished that he went from fasting and broken to bold and courageous. We've got to lead this nation for the Lord until he takes me home. And David says this as he recognizes the truth that his son has been taken from me. David says to his men, can I bring him back again? The answer is no. He said, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David says, I one day will go to him. I will be with him. He's not annihilated. He does have a future eternal existence. And one day there will be the opportunity for me to be with him again. He can't come back to me, though. But I can go to him. And I could take you to other passages of Scripture. But there is a good foundational passage that says we will know one another in the resurrection. I think we will know one another better than we know one another now. I think, and I would say to my dear wife, I think I'm going to love you better in heaven because I'm not going to have all this baggage of sin that I towed around in this life now. I'll be able to love you more purely and rightly, but I'm not going to love you like Jesus. I love Jesus Christ because you're going to be loving Christ like I will as well. And so we will love one another more purely in heaven. We will be more perfect and more righteous and more lovable in heaven, but our eternal marriage will be with Jesus Christ, and we will be very satisfied with that. And our relationship with one another will will turn, and we together will worship Jesus Christ like we've only tried to do together in marriage in this life now. So we go on to see that Jesus is very aggressive in confronting these Sadducees on this topic. He goes right at them with, you do not know the scriptures. You need to understand the the two before swinging against the side of their head that that statement was. 
These Pharisees prided themselves in knowing the Scriptures. They embraced the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to refute your opinion about the resurrection with your own writings from Moses' book, the book of Exodus. And so in Exodus 3, 6, Jesus quotes that passage directly. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's how God identified himself to Moses. This would have shocked the Sadducees in that moment. Why? Well, when God said that sentence to Moses, those three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where were they? They were dead. They had passed on already. And God, in speaking to Moses, speaks in the present tense. I am the God of. He does not say, I was the God of. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. Jesus uses this passage of Scripture to refute the Sadducees' disbelief in the resurrection. Incidentally, Jesus has written here a commentary on the book of Exodus. We're not reading some man's opinion about what Exodus means. We're reading God's opinion about what God wrote in the book of Exodus through the pen of Moses. And Jesus says, God being the God of those three patriarchs is proof that there's a resurrection because he speaks of them in the present tense because God is not the God of those that are dead and annihilated and no more. Wouldn't that make God weak and insignificant if he's the God of annihilated human beings that don't exist? So because of this, Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And I want you to read with me about these patriarchs and what it says over there. In Hebrews chapter 11, we'll pick up in verses 8 through 10, and then I'll jump and read 13 through 16. Here's what the writer writes. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So there's our three men. Heirs with him to the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Watch this in verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one, not an earthly one, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God has made a provision for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a heavenly city built on a foundation established by God. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
looked forward to that promised land. They never got it. They looked forward to it, trusting that God would be faithful to his covenant. And so I just want to speak to this this covenant concept as it relates to the resurrection for a moment. These three patriarchs were in a covenant relationship with God. We get the promise, the covenant that God set with each of them in the book of Genesis. And it's a never-to-be-broken covenant. It cannot even be broken by death. God will be faithful to those He makes a covenant with even on the other side of death in this life that we know now. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were seeking a homeland. They longed for a better country. The country that they longed for was a heavenly one. And God was faithful to provide it. And that's why God says to Moses, I am the God of these three men. I not, it's not that I was, but I perpetually am the God of them. Jesus said they didn't know the Scriptures, these Sadducees. They didn't understand and believe in the power of God. I want to show you a few other things that they missed as it relates to the Scriptures and the power of God. If you look in Genesis chapter 2 and take, for instance, the, the man Adam, we understand from the Bible that Adam was a non-entity. God made him from the dust. He had no life. And God in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 breathed life in his nostrils and the man became living. That's the God of the resurrection. In fact, that's a proto, that's a first type of res- resurrection. A dead Adam, he's not lived yet, he's not died, but he is not alive. Life is breathed into him. This is the God that Jesus is proclaiming to these Sadducees. Next, you look at the the story of Isaac. He's a son that is delivered from death. Hebrews 11, 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And listen to verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So there's resurrection even proclaimed in the book of Genesis in the story of Isaac being sacrificed by Abraham. He is raised from the dead in that he is spared death and God provides a lamb to be a substitute for his son. I could show you Enoch, a man who was not. He was taken up by God. Genesis 5.23 says this, Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Well, in the genealogies that are given before that verse and after that verse, each person died. He died. He died. He died. When we get to Enoch, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him up. It does not say that he died. And the Israelites of this age that Jesus was speaking to believed that Enoch was spared death and taken directly into eternal life. The same could be said about Elijah. I won't take you there, but Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind and did not experience death. And Elisha watched it happen. There's other key passages in the Old Testament Tragically, they're disregarded by the Sadducees because they're outside of the five books of the law. Psalm 73, 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
David writes. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. That afterward is after life. You will receive me to glory. One other one, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Old Testament is full of resurrection language, full of it. And these Sadducees are stiff-necked and they do not believe in what they deem to be a superstitious belief of the people of God. So each of these cases, Adam, Isaac, Enoch, Elijah, and these other passages show the sovereign power of God and the truth of the resurrection and eternal life. And it's found in the scriptures that Jesus says these Sadducees do not know. So there we have it. The trap has been dismantled. And Jesus is not caught. There's a last word, verse uh, 28 there. I love how Jesus ends this. I'm sorry, 27. He is the God of, not the God of dead, but the living. And then his final sentence, you are quite wrong. (laughs) In Luke, uh, in Matthew, it says, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. In Luke, we read, then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. They've watched the Pharisees and the Herodians be stumped with render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now they watch the Sadducees. They don't marry in heaven. They're not given in marriage. And there is a resurrection. It's proved in God's words to Moses. Your Moses the author of your five books, that he is the God of the living, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I conclude with this. For you personally, God would not pledge himself to you forever unless you as a believer in Jesus Christ would die and be raised again. He's the God of the living not the God of the dead. When God saves you, He establishes a covenant with you that will last for eternity. It's not time-bound by whether or not you draw breath on this earth. Once a relationship with God is established, it bears a promise that cannot be ended. Cannot be ended. Not even with death. And so your relationship with God is the result of the promise and power of God that conquers death. How does he conquer death? That's the great question of this morning. How does God fulfill his covenant through your death on the other side in a resurrected life? Well, I want you to just consider who it is these Sadducees are talking with. They're talking with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ in John 11 said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
So Jesus, as I read in 1 Corinthians 15, he's a forerunner. Colossians 1.18 says he's the firstborn from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, we read that he is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus leads the way into the resurrection life. And we only follow him by believing in him. So this morning, I'm going to ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? That he died as a substitute for all of your sins that he did not commit? That yes, he really died and he was really buried in a tomb with a stone rolled over it. And that after he was good and dead, he didn't faint after he was good and dead. On the third day, he rose from the grave as the first of those who would be received by God the Father into eternal life. Do you believe this? It's true. And if you do, you will be the second fruits and the third fruits and the billionth fruits that will follow Jesus Christ in the resurrection. You know, Jesus further substantiated the reality of the resurrections of the patriarchs when he said this in Matthew. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There we have it again. They will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom of this earth will be thrown into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is clear. The resurrection is true. All will be raised from the dead. And those that believe in him will be resurrected into eternal life where they will be married to Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and worship him forever and ever with all those that believe in him. And there is a resurrection of the, the dead that don't believe in Jesus Christ, and they will, in resurrection form, spend all of eternity separated from God in outer darkness, weeping and gnashing their teeth in a real place called hell. The resurrection is real. For the just and for the unjust. And I urge you this morning to find yourself in faith a member of the resurrection of the just. Let's pray. Father, we pray for belief and confidence and hope that is found in the truth of the resurrection. We thank you that we meet on a day of the week every week that remembers the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. I pray that today as we've considered the truth of the resurrection, we have looked into our own souls through the lens of your scriptures to find whether or not we are truly believing in the resurrection and the life that is found in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would find us there and grant us hearts that would believe fully the truth of eternal life with Jesus Christ. Jesus had to be raised from the dead, Father, because he had to die. And he had to die so that we might be forgiven our sins. We thank you for this gift of salvation that can be found only in him and through him and by him and for him. Grant us hearts to worship this truth this week. And bring us back together faithfully next Lord's Day to celebrate this resurrection once again. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.